In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, I'll do the book of the week on Friday. Um, but first, wanted to acknowledge and mention the protests that took place this weekend. There were some across the globe. I got to partake in the one in Los Angeles here, and the turnout was amazing. Um, estimates are hard, and I saw some different ones. Some were, it seems to me, very underestimating. I did see 80,000 um, people, which is incredible big number. Uh, I don't know the exact amount. It's hard to give a precise number, but there was a lot of people there, but it was nice to see so many people there making their voices heard and making sure they did their part to participate in the protest. So um, hope to see you at the next ones. I'm sure there will be more and more coming um, in the near future. So hope to see you there. Um, changing uh, topics or changing gears a bit. I um, wanted to share some things related to self-esteem today or some thoughts on self-esteem and the unconscious and doing that using an analogy. So self-esteem, like a lot of psychological concepts, can be hard to define or hard to agree on a definition. So if you look up definitions of self-esteem, you're going to find many different ones. And Often people confuse what I would call more like a self-confidence with a self-esteem, or they assume that if someone has self-esteem, they think they're so good or put themselves above other people. So often you'll hear people say, oh, they have too much self-esteem, um, and that's not good. And to me, that would not be what genuine self-esteem should look like. It's actually something else. Because a genuine self-esteem is valuing yourself as a human being and seeing your worth as a human being. That you deserve to be treated with love and respect as other humans do. And you deserve to have your needs met as other humans do. So to me, a genuine self-esteem is something that you in that way couldn't have too much of because... When it is at the level it needs to be, when it is at a sufficient level, it's going to mean that I value myself, but as much as I value other people or see myself in that way. And of course, I am myself and I have to take care of myself, so I'm going to pay attention to my needs in a different way. I might pay attention to someone else's when it comes to determining what they are and taking care of them, but I don't put myself above someone else. Uh, I think some of the self-esteem movements or things you see, people will say it's putting yourself above other people. And I don't think that is something healthy or something we should be striving towards, but it's recognizing our worth. The problem is most people, or the bigger, more common issues, people seeing themselves as less than, 
putting themselves down, not being sure. They question their own worth or value. Am I worthy of love and acceptance? Am I even allowed to have my needs met, my basic needs met? Is that okay? And that tends to be more the problem and actually the overvaluing or putting ourselves above other people tends to be in response to being afraid that we are not good enough, that we are low. So what we want to strive towards is a sense that we, I'm good, I'm okay, not above other people, but I, I have value, I have worth. And the analogy that I wanted to put forward is, I was thinking about how much our self-esteem does get formed in those early years, how formative it is for our self-esteem, that we see how we're treated, how we're respected, how people look at us and, and talk about us and respond to us, and we internalize this sense of our self-esteem, which is similar, where we can also look at self-worth and the way we value ourselves. And the analogy I thought of is like learning a foreign language or learning language, that we know that there are these critical windows that if a child learns a language before the age of five or six, they can become very fluent and actually a level of fluency that won't be possible if they try to learn it at 15 or 20 or 40. Um, and even things like pronunciation and not having an accent, those things will be able to be captured at that age, but it'll be harder when you're older to even hear some of the differences and then to be able to produce the sounds and to become fluid in that language. And so similarly, our self-esteem is that same way that there is this critical window where it's going to be very much impacted by what happens during that age. And we can kind of learn to have our self-esteem in that way during that period, or we do learn it and at what level. Now, the thing is, many of us now not being children, if you're listening to the show, probably you're not a child. And if you try to work on your self-esteem, it's like trying to learn a language at an older age. You can, and you definitely can make a lot of progress, but still there might be something limited in what you can do. So we probably can't make it as good as if you got it at that young age. That doesn't seem like it can happen, but it doesn't mean you can't do a lot. People learn and a uh, uh, second language, third language, fourth language in adulthood and can become very proficient and do quite well in speaking, reading, even writing. Um, so you can do a lot, but it doesn't seem that you could ever capture what's there in that critical window. And so I was thinking of that analogy and how it seemed to me to make sense or have that parallel that we have to be aware of that. So as an adult, you can't go back and change your past, but you can still do a lot, and that's what we're asked to do. And so as parents, what do you do as far as teaching your children this language? What does that look like, or what would it look like to teach them or to make sure what they take and internalize for their self-esteem is something that is good? And we here again see some of those movements that people at times go to the other extreme. So of course, putting someone down, if you tell your child, you're stupid, ugly, I don't, I'm not telling them that you love them, physically abusing them, we know that those things will obviously have a huge negative impact on their self-esteem and how they feel about themselves, how they expect and accept others to treat them. 
in a negative way. So that makes sense. And so what a lot of people experience is because they had, unfortunately, negative experiences like that, they weren't given enough physical touch, let's say, or they weren't uh, told nice things, were told very mean things, they can go to the other extreme. So rather uh, than saying you're okay, you're good the way you are, it's that you're perfect, you're amazing. Or rather than letting you ever you know, hurting you, they want to make sure you never feel a pain and they go to the other extreme to make sure you're always feeling okay. You know, even you hear this in the language people sometimes use, they'll say, when I was a kid, I felt this way about, you know, myself or my parents. I never wanted my kids to feel that way, which is an understandable place to be coming from that if I experienced something and it was painful, I wouldn't want my child to go through that. But unfortunately, the opposite of something unhealthy is also unhealthy. So it's like if you're too cold and you're like, I was always cold, I never want my child to be cold. If you cover them in blankets and turn up the heat all the time, they're not going to feel good. They're going to be now too hot. So the opposite of the too cold isn't going to be the healthy. It's actually get them something warm. And so what happens is if we haven't dealt with our own pain, we can react to our own pain in this way. I didn't like what happened to me. I'm going to give the opposite to my child. But this tends to be true in almost any type of experience or, or feeling or whatever it might be, that if we felt something, we have to be careful that we don't go to the other extreme and think that that's healthier, that's healing. I got hurt in a relationship, so never let me never open myself up to get hurt again or never get close to someone again. That feels safe. Or... Um, I didn't get enough sleep. Now I'm going to rest too much and that's not going to feel good. Or um, I didn't have enough to drink. Now I'm going to drink too much. That's not good either. So we see that the opposite of something unhealthy or the opposite of something that hurt even doesn't mean that's the healthy thing. So with our kids, we have to be careful. Yes, of course, never to say something harmful and hurtful and put them down. But you don't want to go to the other extreme and think, I have to make my kid think they're better than other people or they're so amazing or so perfect that that is going to make them feel good. Because one, that's not genuine and they'll t start to feel that over time. But two, you can also create a perfectionism or a, or a pressure for them to meet some unrealistic standard, which will also make them feel bad because once they don't meet it, they won't feel good about themselves. So what you want to do is, of course, what you say to them is important, but how you treat them is going to be even more important than just the words. That's going to be part of the treatment, but your behavior towards them. How much do you make them feel like their needs matter, that their needs are being met? How much are they allowed to feel different things? So if you want your child always to be happy because you think that's the good thing and that feels good and it's hard to feel bad, then when they inevitably will feel bad, if they aren't given that space to express it and if they are shown that that makes you feel sad or upset or not like them, well, then they're going to internalize that something is wrong with me because they have this bad feeling. Mom or dad, they don't like it, so they feel I am bad for having this feeling. And so how often do we see someone who becomes a people pleaser? They look happy on the outside, but they're not happy internally because it's not that those sad feelings don't exist, but they don't think they can share them or show them. And they've also internalized this when they're by themselves, this sense of shame for feeling this way. So when we're talking about self-esteem, it's the whole self that has to feel okay. 
that you are a human being that has flaws, that you'll be good at things, not good at things, you'll have good days, bad days, you will be happy, sad, and every other feeling and emotion that we can have, and these are all okay. So it's a sense of accepting you the way you are, which doesn't mean the way you are is the best way. If you got a B, that's the best grade. No, you can improve, but we can still accept the B, the C, whatever the grade is, and you aren't now unworthy of love or unworthy of being accepted. So as a parent, you have this critical window where we should recognize the significance that your child gets so impacted by how you treat them during those early years in ways that they will carry forward for the rest of their lives. And to think that I want them to internalize this healthy language during this window of how they feel about themselves. And it's also a healthy language because it affects how they will talk to themselves. So it becomes that self-talk, that internalized language. So what do you want them to learn about themselves? How do you want them to talk about themselves for the rest of their lives? Because what we see is that when people are treated in a certain way in their early years, parents can be a million miles away or even dead. The adults now will still talk to themselves in those voices they got from their parents, they got from those loved ones, those significant people in their lives. So we have this critical window where we learn our self-esteem, but we can still learn it when we get older to have a healthy sense of self-esteem. It's just going to be that much harder the older we are to make that same progress. And there's some levels we likely can never reach. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I was talking about our self-esteem and how we can make an analogy to learning a language or a foreign language, that there's a critical window where we're, when we're younger that will have a huge impact or creates the highest potential of what we could have in that window. But that when we're older, we can still do a lot to improve on. It just won't be as good or we can't get to certain levels of, of self-esteem. And so this also relates to our unconscious because um, what we experience in those early years, for most of those years, we would say we can't make conscious memories or we can't make these types of memories where we remember this thing happened or I was one years old and it took them a long time for them to change me and I remember laying there. You might think you remember something like that, but we don't think you actually could consciously remember that. And so this always uh, puzzled me or it seemed so true, but I had a hard time understanding the mechanism of it. And sometimes I would get asked this, well, if you can't remember those things that happened to you, then how could they impact you, right? So if you can't remember that people treated you a certain way, how could you, how would it impact you? And and it was hard to give a, an answer and in a way it's funny because I think unconsciously it kind of felt right or I knew it was right, but I didn't know how to explain it or uh, to make sure it was right. Of course, a lot of things that could seem true um, are not. They just seem that way. So we're always unsure when something feels right or we think it's right. And understanding the human psyche, understanding our our brain, and even at times now, I always say brain, but I, as a predicting machine, which I think it is, but we really see that it's the whole whole body. I'm talking about the book, uh, the gut, uh, gut or the gut. A few weeks ago, we see how much of our um, feeling is happening in our, 
our gut and that system, the enteric nervous system. But nonetheless, the way our brains, just for simplicity, I'll say it's a predicting machine. We aren't conscious of what goes into that prediction. So you walk into a room and you have a certain feeling. You don't necessarily know why. You might say, I feel something uneasy about this room. And let's just say for the this analogy, it turns out five years ago you were in that room and something bad happened or you got some bad news in that room, but you didn't remember it in that moment, but the feeling comes up. So the way our brain makes predictions, you don't input it consciously, unconsciously it is coming up all the time. Even here, um, right now I'm at the radio station doing the show in the studio and I for years now, I've been doing the show close to nine years, would always sit, sit in the same seat, even though our studio moved, it was, uh, it would be in the same seat as far as relative to the room. But due to some issue with the headphones and the jack, I had to move these last few shows. And it's interesting, it feels different here for me. There's something that um, maybe two feet over, but feels a little bit off or different about it. And then if I sit here long enough, this will feel like the comfortable spot or the right place to be. But I don't think about it when I'm coming in to sit here. It's just the way I feel. So this then makes a lot of sense when we recognize the unconscious holds our sum of experiences in the way that we feel about things. We are conscious of very little of it in two ways. One, we're conscious of very little of it at any given time. So I can only be aware of a small amount of things at any given moment. I can't take in even all the sensory information around me at a given moment it would be too much. I have to in some ways not pay attention to some of it, but of course then all the things that I can think of or have experienced, I can't be conscious of even a sliver of what's there because it would just be too much and too overwhelming for me to, to think about it. So I, I just can't be aware of all that. So this is what I've talked about before, that the unconscious is uh, kind of given a bad name sometimes, or we think of it in a bad way, something dark. Um, but it's just that we, we can't be aware of really more than a sliver of things. So that's one way is that there's just too much for us uh, to be aware of, for us to then be conscious of it all. And then also we can't be conscious of what's going into any particular moment what's happening to know what we are thinking of or what's happening there to, to affect us so our self-esteem as i was saying or the way we feel about ourselves and also the way we feel about other people this is going to be based on the sum total of our experiences in our life it's going to be more pivotal or impactful in those early years how we feel and then uh, amazingly how we experience the rest of our life can be impacted by what happens then and so I'm reminded of the quote by Carl Jung, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And it's a really beautiful quote and also very poignant because it is so reflective of what we all experience. For example, People will talk about their dating lives and say, oh, you know what, my luck, I keep dating people that are like this or they're like that. And so it just seems like bad luck. Can you believe it? The last three girls I dated were this way. The last three guys I dated all did this kind of thing or had this issue. And it just seems like bad luck until we realize there's something unconsciously attracting us 
to those kinds of people and attracting them to us too in some way that is creating those situations. It's not just bad luck or random. There's something going on, but you're not aware of it. You don't go into it thinking, oh, I want to meet another controlling person or I want to meet another person who has anger issues. When you first meet them, they likely don't show you those things at all. On a first date, people are presenting their best sides and not showing these um, deeper sides of them that wouldn't be something pleasant for us to experience, but something about them likely feels familiar for you. So people often will say someone feels like home. That sounds really nice and usually positive, but it could be negative. Or that they seemed like they knew them already, which we take as a good thing. And it could be something that you feel comfortable with them. So I don't want to say it's always bad. But there could be also something that they feel familiar because it's something you've experienced in your past that you can't consciously be aware of or put some label on, but it feels comfortable because you've had that experience with someone in the past. So in this feeling of I'm just unlucky in love, I might say there's no luck in it because there, of course, can be factors out of our control. It doesn't mean we control everything, but we might recognize that a lot more can be in our control when we become aware of what's impacting our decisions, what's impacting who we are being attracted to and who we are starting relationships with and even how we create our relationships. Because it's not just who you get attracted to, it's what kind of a relationship you create. You can push someone to be more angry or less angry based on how you respond. You're not responsible for exactly how they act, but you can make people be more likely to act in certain ways. There are self-fulfilling prophecies. For example, if you think, oh, this person is not going to like me, you're more likely to push it so that the person won't like you. So you see this happen a lot. People think, oh, this person is not going to like me. And initially, the person's very attracted to them, but they do things, they doubt, they say certain things that makes the person feel less attracted to them because they're making it difficult for the person to maintain their attraction. And then at the end, they're like, I'll see another person who doesn't like me, wasn't attracted to me. They all leave, not realizing that somehow you are pushing for that outcome because it's comfortable or something you are used to. Now, there's something interesting when we, you know, this whole thing of making the unconscious conscious, because if we're saying it's unconscious, it means it's out of your awareness. You don't know it's there. Um, and so even as a therapist, you somebody's that, do you think unconsciously you do X or do you think unconsciously you do something like this? And I actually do think the question can sound funny because I'm saying it's something you're not aware of. And then I ask you, uh, it could seem very puzzling. It's like if I'm saying, do you think tomorrow this is going to happen or last week somewhere where you weren't, this thing happened? You can't know. You know, I can ask you. But when I think about it, we can see it in a different way that when we ask, what I'm trying to do is not go to your conscious mind to say, is this happening? Really, we're trying to bypass that and go a little bit deeper to the feeling. And that's why we say something like, does that interpretation resonate for you? Meaning, does it feel right? Because that's a feeling like that feels right. You know, do you feel do you think maybe unconsciously you are attracted to these kind of women because your mom, blah, 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 blah. And then you see, and you go, oh, you know what, that that feels kind of right. The problem is actually often when you say an interpretation or ask someone about what they might be experiencing unconsciously, they're consciously answering. And usually that means, do I want it to be true or not? Do you think unconsciously you're jealous of, oh, no, no, I'm not jealous. Why would I be jealous about this, this, or the other? And they even say it that way. Why would I be? And so usually when we're talking about a unconscious feeling, 
it doesn't mean it's a rational or logical or you should feel that way. It's not even about should you or shouldn't you. We experience all sorts of things that might not make sense or we wouldn't want it to be true, but they might be true. You have an insecurity about something. You have a phobia about something. You have an anxiety about something. It doesn't mean you should feel it. It's healthy to feel it. It's good to feel it. But we know that our, our psyche, our unconscious has lots of things going on that some might be helpful, some unhelpful, and that's why we're trying to understand them to get a better sense of what's going on. So if someone asks you a question or if you yourself are wondering, oh, I wonder if unconsciously or somewhere I've got this thing going on, give yourself time to respond in a feeling way. So don't just make a reaction to it of what you want to be true and be aware of that. Would I want this to be true or not? Because sometimes you ask people a question like, oh, like, they don't want it to be true. Are you envious of this person? They want to know, of course, why would I be envious? And it makes them feel bad to be envious, so they don't want to feel that. You have to let it resonate for a second and think about it. And so we even see this in therapy that when you make an interpretation, if you really feel like it's genuinely resonating with them, it usually takes a second or two for them to really feel that. Because what can also happen is sometimes a client, if they are more on a people pleaser side, they might just say yes to everything the therapist says. So do you think unconsciously, maybe you're mad at your mom for this and then you did that? Oh yeah, yeah, you're, that's so true, yeah. I really think that's right. And so that type of reaction to me tends not to feel authentic because it seems like they're trying to give an answer that I want to hear or they think I want to hear to make me feel good rather than going within to see, does it resonate with me what is being said, can I connect to that in some way? So it is a little bit peculiar because if it's unconscious and I'm asking you to give me an answer consciously, it could seem like, well, I can't tell you if it's true or not. So I sometimes laugh if you ask someone, do you think unconsciously whatever? And they say, no, definitely not. Well, you can't really know because we don't know everything that's in our unconscious. But the important part here is to think about in your own life, what are things that you think our fate or luck or just have to happen or have happened in your life, then maybe you've played a bigger part than you realize. So if you've had, since I mentioned dating and relationships, several relationships that went a certain way and you just thought you had bad luck or look at these people I dated, how bad they were. What if you recognize you might have had a bigger role in being attracted to those people, attracting them to you, and also creating the relationships you created. And this isn't to say or to encourage you to blame yourself, to not be like, oh, see, you messed it up. If you're unhappy, it was your fault. That's not going to get us anywhere. But actually, if we recognize we have more of an authorship and more of an ability to affect what's going on and what has happened to us, well, then I have more authority to write the story of what's going to happen next. It's not just my bad luck and I hope now I get good luck. It's that I've done certain things to create what's happened to me and I can do different things to create a different outcome for me going forward. And that's what I want to do. So often that's something with clients that I encourage them to do is to see how have they created the experiences they've had. They contributed. Not enough. you've controlled it, you have complete control, but where is your control in that? Or where is your ability to influence what's happening and now to create different outcomes for yourself going forward? So I'm, I'm always fascinated by, fascinated by this, trying to understand our unconscious, what that even means. How do we tap into it? How do we 
connect to it. And then if we consider, again, that we're such a predicting machine, we see that we go into every interaction with all these predictions and things we think can happen, should happen, and also what shouldn't happen that are going to have a huge impact on what the outcome is and what happens next. And that can be quite critical. So I really do love that quote by Carl Jung. He's really a fascinating person who really understood the depths of the human psyche in some really powerful ways. So I recommend reading some of his, not just quotes, but his writings to get some insight. So again, that quote was, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Okay, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So on today's show, I was talking about self-esteem and the unconscious and how we, of course, cannot be aware of much of what's in our unconscious, but we can become more aware by trying to connect to certain things, see what resonates, noticing patterns. And that is why actually therapy can be helpful because we tend not to do a good job of recognizing these things and these patterns. And someone from the outside can give us some insights or point some things out to us that then we have to see if it resonates and see if it's true to to see if we become aware of that. But it can be hard for us to recognize it on our own or completely by ourselves. Sometimes people say, well, can't you do therapy on yourself? And um, there's a lot you can do, and it doesn't mean you can't do a lot of self-therapy and work on yourself in a variety of ways. But there are limits to how much we can do completely on our own if we try to understand ourselves in a deeper way. Another set of eyes and ears can help us better understand what is going on for us. Now, this type of explanation or discussion of self-esteem and the unconscious and how they're very strongly related can help us to understand why we might accept bad treatment in some way or being treated poorly by people. Because it could seem paradoxical. Why would I accept being treated in a bad way? I can see it's bad, it doesn't feel good, and yet I might stay in that situation, I might put myself in a new situation that makes me feel bad in a similar way. Why might I do that? Well, as I was saying in the previous segment, we might find ourselves attracted to people who have some of the negative qualities of our parents because of the familiarity and the comfort, and what might also be the sense that we have some kind of unfinished business there. I need to figure something out. If I had a parent who didn't love me enough, if I find someone who's critical and judgmental of me, but if I get that person to love me, which is what I always want to do is get my parents to love me, that's going to be this amazing feeling that's going to heal this wound. And this happens unconsciously. People won't say, let me pick a critical and judgmental partner and try to make them like me or love me. They'll feel attracted to this person and then get caught back into this drama, which is the drama from their past. So it feels familiar to us and we also can look for it in a certain way because it feels right. And so something that we see by being predicting machines is that we also tend to go towards things we've already experienced or can in that way predict rather than something new. The simplified way I'll sometimes say this is it's like we choose depression over anxiety. We choose a known pain over an unknown we don't know what it can be good it could be bad so often we'll find ourselves staying in a bad situation or creating the same types of bad situations another way we 
say this is the slogan or the, the saying, the devil I know versus the devil I don't know. If I know how I'm being hurt here, I've experienced this before, it's easier to stay there than to go somewhere new. I don't know what's going to happen there. And so we see this happen. And this is why also when we use a phrase like the comfort zone, which sounds nice, comfort sounds obviously comfortable, sounds pleasant, but people can be surprised. We'll say, oh, your comfort zone might be being lonely. Like, well, how could that be my comfort zone? That's so painful. I don't like it. But it could be that you are used to this pain. It's familiar to you. And the alternative might scare you in a way that makes you prefer that in some way, that you go towards this painful feeling. Your comfort zone doesn't feel good. And so what I tend to say is your comfort zone leaves you unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. But yet we so often find ourselves there because it's easier, because it's safer, and it actually takes some effort to resist and to go against our comfort zone. Just like your physical body, your muscles feel fine the way they are. If you want them to grow, you're going to have to push them into pain, into some uh, discomfort. That's the only way they're going to grow or else they're going to stay in that, that state of actually not getting stronger and getting weaker over time because you're not working them enough. So we choose these comforts that we know even when they are painful. And so this leads to a paradox that we can sometimes experience. For example, someone wants a better job, but they're also anxious about having a better job. And so they stay stuck. And this is why we might say things like part of you wants this, part of you wants that. It can seem weird. It's like I'm one person. I don't have different parts or different personalities, but really we do. There is conflicting types of desires within us. For example, you might be thirsty and cold at the same time. And so you have these conflicting desires. They're both true. Are you thirsty? Are you cold? Yes. And depending on which one is more extreme and of course, which one is more needed, probably the, the let's say the water, unless your temperature is really cold, you might go, let's say, have some water before you try to warm up. Or maybe actually, I don't know which one would take a priority, but you would do one of them first. So we can feel multiple things. And so something we also tease apart in therapy often is figuring out what it is you want, recognizing that there's likely conflicting feelings you might have within you. So on one hand, you want to be close to someone else, but on the other hand, you're afraid of it. So even when we say fear of intimacy, something I talked about last week, a fear of intimacy isn't just that you don't like intimacy. It's that you want intimacy, but that you're also afraid of it. Because if you just didn't want it, we wouldn't have to worry about it. It's like, okay, I'm afraid of, you know, um, caterpillars, but I never want to be around when it's not a problem. The problem is when I really want to be around caterpillars and I have a fear of them. And so we have these types of fears and we recognize that unconsciously we might be afraid of something or have anxiety about something, but consciously we want something else. And that conflict can be difficult for us to, to reconcile and might lead to some push and pull. So, for example, we see this in relationships where people have a fear of intimacy. As I've mentioned, we all have a fear of intimacy to a degree in the sense that intimacy is risky. It does mean being vulnerable and putting ourselves out there. But people have different degrees of how strong that fear is and how strong that desire is for the intimacy that can affect what they then do. But so someone with the fear of intimacy who has a very overwhelming fear of getting hurt it's not that they don't want to be close, they do, but then they're also afraid to be hurt. So how does this show up? 
Well, they might do a variety of things. One is they might date people where they know it's not going to work out. Unconsciously, they might not consciously say that, or sometimes they become aware of it. But they might date people who are either unavailable, maybe they're actually in another relationship somehow, or just not ready to be in a relationship, or something logistically makes it that they're not going to work. They don't want kids, but the other person does, or vice versa. Or they won't want to be with someone who already has kids, and then they start dating someone who does have kids. Or there is some cultural or religious difference that they know they can never do, or their family would never accept, but then they start a relationship. And so in this way, they'll get some level of closeness, they'll connect to someone, they'll have some kind of a relationship, but it'll come with an expiration date that'll make it feel safer. So they in a way know it'll have to end or that it can't be the ultimate thing that leads to, let's say, getting getting married or whatever it is they consciously want, but they can feel like they're still trying or putting the effort into it. And in the meantime, feeling some level of closeness, which they like and want, so they get some type of intimacy, but they'll find that they keep entering these wrong relationships that will end up Um, not getting to that ultimate goal that they say they have. And so you might ask someone like this, or you might recognize that pattern. It looks like you keep dating people where you know it's not going to work out. Or if we look at it, it was just in a way obvious it couldn't work out. But then you dated them for a few months or a year or however long, um, and even had a hard time leaving the relationship. And then you went to the next person and did the same thing. And the person might say, oh, no, what are you talking about? No, I really love them or I like them. It just didn't work out or I thought we could make it work or something like that. But probably if they get a little bit closer to their own feelings and that unconscious that's driving them, they'll see, oh, yeah, there, there probably is something there. I'm choosing the wrong relationships intentionally, unconsciously, but intentionally because I know they won't work out and I won't have to face that ultimate fear. So... What that person will have to do, one, is becoming aware of it might help them. Having that awareness of our unconscious helps. But it doesn't mean it makes it easy. Because if I know that the thing I need to do is to jump from here to there, or that I have to get on a plane to get to the thing I want, but I'm afraid of planes, it doesn't mean now it's easy just because I know what I need to do, or I know that I have to face this thing. And so this is why actually in therapy... We talk about these things in the unconscious, but sometimes people have the sense, well, if I recognize these things or have these insights, then life becomes easy or the problem just disappears. And rarely is that the case, even when we acknowledge or understand what's holding us back or what that fear is or even where it's coming from. Oh, look, your parents' marriage was this way or in your relationship with your mother or your father, this was happening, so maybe it makes you afraid. We might become very aware of it. The thing is now when we're in the next situation to date or to get close to someone, the feelings don't disappear just because we've logically understood what's going on. That is going to be harder to change and will take some time and will take some being uncomfortable. You'll have to do a thing and do things that don't feel quite right, that something inside of you will be saying, oh, that's a little bit scary or that's risky or I might get hurt or this doesn't feel right. You'll have to resist against that or go into that discomfort going back to that comfort zone you have to go into this comfort to have some kind of growth and for things to change so tomorrow is 
Valentine's Day. And really, I didn't plan to transition to this part, but I know for many people it can be a lot of feelings come up for them, whether you're in a relationship or not, that might be triggered by Valentine's Day. But it could be something worth reflecting on yourself that being aware that I might have conscious goals or things I want, whether it's to be in a relationship or not, or then within the types of relationships that you enter, but see what might be unconsciously also running the show things that I think are my fate or my luck, but that I might be choosing in some way because they are easier. People might be in a relationship and they say they want to get emotionally intimate, but maybe they chose a partner who won't make them have to risk that. So they're still with someone, but not that close or not have to risk getting that close. And that feels safe for them. And so this also extends not just in romantic relationships, but in our lives. We might choose to take our career in a certain direction or if you hear yourself saying I can't do that or I could never do this it's more than likely that it's not that you can't it's that something scares you about doing that and so maybe you actually want it I was actually talking to a friend last week and they said my dream is and then I kind of I smiled when they said that because I knew they were talking about something in their career that if they say it then I'll want to hold them accountable to that So once you declare what your dream is, what you really want, well, now you're responsible to make it happen. But so often we don't even let ourselves realize what we want because we don't want that pressure to have to change, to have to make the necessary changes and take the risks that it takes to get there. So we would rather just stay, no, this is actually, I'm happy. Why would I want things to change? Why would I want my job to be different? I'm so lucky. You know, we trick ourselves, we say things, oh, I'm so lucky to have a job, other people don't, or many people don't. And it's not that that's not true. You might be very lucky, one, to have a job, and two, to have the type of job and the income that you have, let's say. But it doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't change that job. Just like you might have a relationship that's better than many people's relationships, but it doesn't mean that you can't make it better, so that you should just accept it as it is. My voice is almost like timed right now to to run out at the end of the show. We're about to to wrap up and I feel it giving out. Um, But so you might look at your relationship too and say it's good. Or people might say if your partner comes to you and says something's not good, you might say, oh, our relationship is better than other people's. I hear that a lot. Oh, why are you complaining about our relationship? Did you see how that husband and wife are? These people are. Why are you complaining about our relationship? But to say you want something you have to be better doesn't mean you don't acknowledge it's not good. And you're not even necessarily thinking of comparing it to other people's, but you see some room for growth or some area for growth, and you're trying to to go towards that growth and go into that discomfort that leads to that growth. And so with dating, we can think of that, but also other areas of our life. What's that comfort zone and how am I fooling myself into thinking everything I have is what I want, but it's really that I'm afraid to go towards the things that I want. Or how often do I tell myself, oh, I want this, but it's just not possible. And not realizing that some of what we're saying, it's not that it's not possible, but that I'm afraid to take the risks and take the chances that are required for me to get there. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.